0: Timothy chapter six tonight, please. First Timothy chapter six. And let's go ahead and stand. And we will read the first eight verses tonight of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh evil envy, I'm sorry, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. And we will stop there this evening, and let's pray. Father, help us to think like you think, and help us to think this way completely and thoroughly. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, we know by now that beginning what to us is chapter 5, Paul has turned his attention to a variety of kinds of people that you will find in a local assembly. He deals, first of all, with the membership in general, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and then with the widows. Verses 3-16. through 16. Then with the elders. Beginning in verse number 17. Through verse number 25. And tonight he turns his attention. To masters. And servants. There are very few places. That take more of our time than work. There are very few things more important to us than our work. and In America, it is not at all uncommon to think of ourselves in terms of what we do. We tend even to identify ourselves by our job description. We tend to say, I am a, rather than, this is the kind of work that I do. We have been created to work, we have been called to work, and yet there are a few things that are more exasperating to us than our work environments and the work that we do. In this section, Paul is talking, as I've already mentioned, to two groups of people, and I want to begin by just pointing out to us that these are radically distinct or radically different categories of people than anything that you and I know. The word servant is a common word. I'm just going to give you the word for the sake of our conversation. You've probably heard it. It is the word doulos, the bond servant of Paul's world. Let as many who are bond servants. And what graphic language he uses to describe the state of a human being. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke that have been placed in the harness count their own masters. And there's a word that we know. Because it is the word despot. We don't like despots. We generally use the word in a pejorative sense. But here is the inspired word of God. To those of you who are bondservants. And to those of you who are despots. A relationship in which one human being has complete and total mastery over the other human being. Now, of course, in America, we have a lengthy history of race-based slavery. But slavery is very old. And for the Jew, it was something that God talked about quite a bit. We're not going to turn to all the passages. This is not an excursion into the world of slavery. But in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, you can read God's instructions about slavery. One thing that is prohibited is human trafficking. 1 Timothy 1.10 talks about those who are men-stealers. And the idea is not kidnapping for ransom. The idea is trafficking in human beings. Human trafficking is prohibited. It is a crime worthy of death in the Old Testament. But slavery was permitted. And in fact, much of the slavery that occurred in Paul's world as a Jew was a voluntary sort of slavery that would be most like indentured servitude where you sold yourself for a period of time into the service of another. and In the seventh year, you were to be set free. You served for six, and in the seventh year, you're released. If you were married when you placed yourself in servitude, you left with your wife. But if you married during the six years of servitude, you got set free, but your wife did not the assumption being that she was a slave and she is serving out her own term of slavery. But he who had sold himself into slavery could also volunteer to remain in slavery. He could make the declaration that I love my master and I love my service and I give myself to him. And at that point in time, and all was taken and a hole was drilled into his ear. And he was identified from that point forward as a slave. Those who owned slaves in the Jewish system were not allowed to mistreat those who were their slaves. If you killed a slave, you would be killed. It was actually within the realm of slavery that the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth came to be, which is not, I assume you know, not Really, a celebration of revenge, but a limitation on it. You can do no more than what you have received. Certain injuries that slaves received at the hands of their masters would automatically set them free. Now, that's Jewish slavery, that is not Roman slavery. Roman slavery is not, as American slavery was, race-based slavery. But Roman slavery was nevertheless what would legally be called chattel slavery. If you were a slave in the Roman world, you were property, pure and simple. And your existence depended entirely upon the whim of your owner. And he was virtually without restriction as to what he could do to you. And I go through all of that folks to make, this, to make this not that what we are about to read is something from which we can excuse ourselves because we are not slaves but something that I think requires of us a greater diligence because we are not slaves. There are two great distinctions between your work situation and the work situation of the people we are about to read. One is that you can leave. Now you may not think that leaving is the best option, but it is an option, and in Paul's world it was not an option. There's no place in the pages of scripture where you're going to find Paul suggesting that maybe what you should do is pick another career field. You were owned by a master. You did what he told you to do, when he told you to do it, for as long as he told you to do it. And if you did not like that, well, you just did not like that. The second way in which your world is radically different than that of Paul's world is that you are the beneficiary of your labor. You get paid for what you do. When you get to the end of the day, You have an abundance of money that has come to you. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you're Bill Gates kind of rich, but you have traded your time for a wage, and that wage is adequate enough for you not only to have enough food to eat and enough clothing to wear, but to provide a fairly comfortable life. When Paul turns our attention to this statement, having food and raiment therewith be content what do you suppose a slave had besides food and raiment a 401k paid family leave sick days <clears throat> he was a slave he was a property and you can go back and read about slavery in the roman world <clears throat> some owners had very creative ways of mistreating their slaves One upper class Roman was known to keep a large collection of predatory fish, and periodically he would throw a slave to the fish to make a point. Don't get out of line. It was a master's world. So, as we read through this, let us remember something, folks that as unpalatable as you may find your job or your boss, you're not a slave. And as unfavorable as you might find your work situation, <clears throat> at the end of the day, you're probably making some measure of profit off of it that the people in Paul's world could not imagine. And as I was standing on the platform during the last song, I was thinking about the fact that it has been almost 40 years for me since I have had anything resembling a real, can I put it that way, a real job. A real job. Since I've had anything to do with what might be called an HR department. I've worked casually over the years for a couple of the guys in the church, but it has always been part-time, very limited work, and nothing that could even remotely be described like this world. Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 by stating a position that is absolutely biblical but probably not very popular. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort a position that is biblical, but probably not popular. Verse number one is a general provision for all who are slaves. Every slave should count his own master worthy of honor. And we've talked about this, right? The word honor has to do with valuation. It can be financial, as 1 Timothy 5 with reference to the elders. Or with reference to the widows. Or it can be in the world of respect. And this is an internal disposition. Paul is not telling you simply to do what you are told. He's not saying, let as many servants as are under the yoke obey. He is commanding an internal disposition of honoring. So all who would be servants, all who are ox-like under the yoke, count your own master worthy of all honor. And this is because of God's name and God's teaching, so that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed, so that your owner has no occasion to talk evil of God because of your attitude. So the Christian servant has no liberty to think about his master this way. You are just an unbeliever. You are vile and wicked and headed for hell. And the only thing that keeps me here is the fact that you own me and I hold you in contempt. But rather... He is to count him worthy of all honor. Of all respect. And should the man take the view that he is so superior by virtue of his Christianity or so much better than his unbelieving master, what he actually finds is that God himself has turned against him. God will not support such mentality. Peter adds to this in First Peter two eighteen. He writes, "Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward." So, in other words, first, there's folks. There's no exemption provided here for bad masters. There's no exemption for really bad bosses. And who hasn't had a bad boss? Who hasn't had a boss that has had it in for them, who doesn't really like them? Who hasn't had a boss that is unreasonable, belligerent, difficult to deal with? Who has not had that kind of employer? There is then the general principle in verse number one. All servants count all masters worthy of honor. Because just as gentlemen, just as we discussed in adult Sunday school this morning, The real big issue was not the people involved, but God. And the big issue here is not our work environment or the reasonableness of our schedule, but of our Savior. In verse number two, after giving a general principle for all masters or all servants, he turns now to those who have believing masters. And they that have believing masters. And I mean seriously folks. Can you imagine what the dynamic of a church service would be? If. When you walked in the building tonight. The people that owned you walked in the building with you. And that you knew when the service was over. That you were going to go back to their home. And they were going to say to you. We'd like to have our supper now and we need you to get our bed ready and then when you're done tending to us you can have a little time for yourself. Let them that have believing masters, let them not despise them. Do not think down upon them I think specifically, although the text does not say specifically, but imagine that. You walk you walk into church this evening, and you are following the couple that own you. And we're going to sing a song about being freed from our sins by the blood of Christ. And you're wondering why this guy who professes faith in the same Christ and Who claims the same deliverance from the same sin that you are has not bothered to set you free. Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 7 if the opportunity to become free is is brought to you, take it, but don't pursue it. Don't think down upon them. And in fact, excuse me, to go back to verse number two specifically, If you have a believing master, not only are you not to think down upon them, because they are brethren, but you are to work the harder for them. That's what he means there, rather do them service. The word rather means to a greater degree, by this much more. Right, so I mean... Again, just for the sake of illustration, here are all the owners on this side of the auditorium, and here are all the slaves on this side of the auditorium. Now, all of you that are slaves, if you have unbelieving masters, they are worthy of your honor because you don't want to do anything to dishonor God, even in your slavery. And if your master happens to be sitting over here on this side of the auditorium, and they're the one that owns you, Don't think critically of them, but actually work harder for them. Be a better slave for a believing master. And in fact, folks, one of the reasons that I kind of gave you the word doulos was not to try and stand up here and talk a foreign language to you, but rather to call your attention to the way that Paul has put it in the text. They that are believing masters, let them not despise them because because they are brethren, but rather do them doulos, service. Servants serve even more. Because they too are believers. And because they are partakers of the benefit. And Paul describes the believing master these ways. Right? He is faithful. And he is beloved. And he is a partaker of your benefit. This guy over here that owns you, you're not making any money on your labor, but he is. You're not getting ahead because of your hard work, but he is. You're not being enriched by your hard work, but he is. And rather than sit there and grumble and gripe and think bad thoughts about it, you're supposed to get up and work all the harder so that he will be all the richer because of the labor that you do. You get to be a slave for a saved person. This is the biblical position. As I said, I doubt it's the popular position. I doubt it's the popular position. There are not very many of us that have gone home after a rough day at work with an unreasonable boss and celebrated him. There are probably some of us who have gone home and thank God that our boss is a believer. But there is the biblical position. Do not resent your master. Think very highly of your master. If they are a believer, work all the harder for them. And whatever you do, whether your master is lost or saved, never make God look bad by your attitude. And Timothy at the end of verse number 2 is to teach and exhort these things. He is to stand in front of his congregation, which includes no doubt masters and slaves. And he is to tell them what God said. And then he is to exhort them to do this. Now, now you, you servants, right? I mean, you can just see Timothy saying, Now, some of you, tur- you, some of you servants, your attitudes are really bad and you need to fix that. You need to repent of your attitude before the Lord. You need to ask His forgiveness. And you need to make this right. These things teach and exhort. Verses 1 and 2, a biblical position, but probably not a popular position. Verses 3 through 5, <clears throat> a popular position that is unbiblical. It is clearly unbiblical, but it is probably more popular. Verse number 3. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself in verse number 3 we are taken back to chapter 1 and verse number 3 in which paul or timothy write or paul writes to timothy as i besought thee to abide still at ephesus when i went into macedonia that thou mightest charge some that they teach no Other doctrine. In other words, folks, I I don't think it's at all a stretch to think that one of the things that Timothy encountered when he was going around what are most likely the little, what we would call small groups that comprise the church in Ephesus. He found elders teaching in the name of God things like rebellion against their masters. Disrespect. You don't have to do it. They're unbelievers. You don't have to do what they tell you to do. You don't have to listen to them. Nobody should be treated like that. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, if any man teaches heterodoxy, if any man teaches anything that contradicts verses 1 and 2, But if he wants to fight about them, which is what Paul is arguing there, if he will not consent, if he wants to roll up his sleeves and go to war over this, I do not have to listen to those kinds of people. I do not have to respect them. I will grit my teeth and do what I am told, but I will hate them in my heart. Here's how God describes him. Here's how God describes him. He is proud. Puffed up. And is there any other way, folks? Is there a better way to describe somebody who contradicts God? Is there there anything more indicative of our inflated sense of ourselves in any area when we say, in effect... I know what God's position is, but he just happens to be wrong. Verses 1 and 2 are the words of Jesus Christ. They are godly doctrine. They are doctrine that is reverential towards God. This is what Paul's concern is. This is always what the biblical concern is is not just simply how we are being treated, but how God is being treated in the way that others are being treated. To go back to verse number 4, how does God describe that? Man, he is proud. He is puffed up. He is arrogant. He is empty-headed. He knows nothing. Literally, his thoughts are nothing. He knows nothing. And he is doting. The word doting refers to being sick. Sickness that verges on insanity. In other words, folks, God is not just taking mild exception to contradicting verses 1 and 2. He is taking great exception to contradicting verses 1 and 2. God is putting labels on those people that no one really wants to be told about themselves. I'm not proud. My thoughts are coherent and right. And there's nothing wrong with me. I am sane and in my right mind. But here's what he is. He is proud. He knows nothing. He is sick with questions about strifes of words that in turn produce this envy. And you know, folks, having lost, excuse me, having lost sight in our culture of the concept of sin, we have lost sight of how much of the racial issue and the social justice issue has to do with envy. I don't have what you have and I want it. Why should I have to be a slave? Why can't I be a master? During the English Reformation a group rose up Known as the levelers. The egalitarians of their world. All men are equal. They rejected the notion as they said that some men were born to the saddle. While others were born to the spur. Quality for everybody. Envy. Envy. He becomes obsessed with disputes about trivial things. I don't know why you want it done this way. It would be so much better if I could just do it this way. Trivial. Rather than complying with what God said, he wants to argue with the Bible. He wants to argue with his boss. He wants to argue with his coworkers. He wants to argue with his spouse. He wants to argue with anybody that will listen about the great injustices and inequalities of the world that he inhabits. And so there is envy, there is strife, there is slander, that's what railing means. There are evil surmisings, which means the aura of suspicion, always suspicious, and perverse disputings. Disputings being the word diatribe, twisted arguments. And God goes on to describe these people as perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. Right? Anybody who will stand and teach that verses 1 and 2 are wrong. That they foster inequality. That they are demeaning to human beings. This is how God defines them. It is unbiblical, but it is far more popular, isn't it? It's not hard to find teachers who are all in a stew about the inequalities. But here is how God views them. If any man will not consent to wholesome words... Wants to go to war with God over this. Here is how God views him. They are in verse number five, right? They all of these diatribes of men whose minds are twisted. Their minds are ruined. They are destitute of the truth. And they're holding to a teaching in the case of religious teachers. Because Paul is clearly, I think, taking a shot at some of the elders in Ephesus who are teaching these kinds of things. That godliness is the means to gain. Supposing that gain is godliness. How do you know? Right? This is not right. It's not fair. It shouldn't be this way. And how is it that God likes some people better by giving them rich? And the way to know that God likes you is by Him making you rich. Gain is godliness. And Paul simply tells Timothy, and therefore Timothy is to instruct all of the believers in the church that the only thing to do with such people is just simply to avoid them. Almost as if Paul envisions no opportunity humanly for any kind of remedial ministry to them. Just stay away from them. Just stay away from them. And it's a very strong injunction there, folks. From such withdraw thyself. It is It is the kind of withdrawing that is on the border of revolting against them. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. You are contradicting the scriptures and I will have... Absolutely none of it. So, there's a biblical position that is probably not very popular, and there's a popular position that is most certainly not biblical. And Paul puts the biblical position into perspective. How would you defend verses 1 and 2? How would you look a man in the eye who comes to you and says, I am a slave and my master is an unbeliever and he is an unreasonable man and he is an abusive man. What should I do? How should I think? And God says, well, you should count him worthy of all honor. And you should not think or do anything that would make me look bad. And how would you defend that? And God defends it in verses 6 through 8. All right, false teacher, you want to talk about gain and godliness, verse number 5. Let's talk about gain and godliness from God's perspective. Godliness, a right attitude towards the Lord that shows up in the right attitude towards people with contentment is gain. It is great gain. Contentment is a sufficiency that looks like independence. We realize we're not independent of the Lord, but we are independent of our circumstances in the world. We are not evaluating ourselves on the basis of the fact that somebody else owns us. And again, folks, right, this is the language, that the world that Paul is talking about. It is no reflection upon my worth as a human being that somebody else owns me. It is no reflection of God's assessment of me. It is no impediment to God's pleasure with me. Now, the carryover to that is, folks, all of those things are true about whatever your work situation is. God does not have a fondness for high-income individuals. We should be able to figure that out from 1 Corinthians one twenty-six through 31. Look at your calling, brothers. Not many. There are not many of us like that. Our value or our worth before the Lord has nothing to do with our job title or the place where we work or the income that we earn. And if you can get to that place of understanding that you really have accomplished something in this world, it is great gain. We can really get to the place where we think about this the way God does. We really have something worth having. And it really is, folks, a wonderful blessing to have God's viewpoint on this. Imagine how, imagine how discouraging it would be if you opened your Bible to a page and found that God celebrated a career path that you could never have. I would be very depressed, folks, if I opened the Bible and found out that God placed all of my worth as a human being on my ability to be a mathematician. I can't be a mathematician. That would be discouraging indeed to know that God has a soft spot in his heart for mathematicians. But it isn't like that at all. He goes on in verse number 7. Why is godliness a right attitude towards the Lord, which is going to show up in honoring my master, even if he's an unbeliever, or working a job that pays the bills, but it really isn't a job that I like, or that anybody would ooh and ah over. Why is it great gain? Because of verse number seven. Because you came into the world with nothing, and you take nothing out of it. Some guy found out one time that he had been mentioned in a will and he asked the accountant how much did he leave and the accountant said he left all of it. Because we all leave all of it, folks. We don't take any of it with us. Even if we put it right in the casket with us, we don't take it with us. It stays right there in the casket. We came in with nothing. We leave with nothing. We're not being measured by how much we have while we're here. So when your unbelieving master tells you to do something, give him the greatest honor. He came with nothing, he's leaving with nothing. You came with nothing, you're leaving with nothing. And here's the basis then of contentment. We will return to this because these verses are transitional. We will look at them again next week. And having food and raiment, be content. Be content. <clears throat> be content with an unbelieving master. Be content to be owned by a human being that doesn't know the Lord. Are you fed? Are you warm? You're good. You're not taking it with you anyway. So here is the right mindset. And again, folks, now, we're not owners and slaves. We're employees and employers. But would you not think that our almost incessant, almost habitual complaining about our immediate bosses and our corporate environments and the people who are providing us with a living would not be more odious to God because we can leave. We can leave. You go, well, I don't know what I'd do if if we left I don't I, I don't I don't know what you would do if you left either. But you don't have to be there. And you're getting paid above the food and raiment level. So I think, folks, that we need to understand the biblical position is more weighing upon us, not less weighing upon us. Honor our masters if you have the great blessing of having a believing boss. Work especially diligent for them. Because we're brothers. And remember, we're we're not working for the prestige of the job. We're, we're not working for the Praise and commendation of society. We're not even working for the self, the sense of our own self-worth. We're working for the Lord. We're working for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> grant to us your attitude about the employment we have in this world, we ask. Help us to take this as seriously as you do. Help us to run away from any and all, believer or unbeliever, who would foster a spirit of dissent and anger at the world that we have. pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.